This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. We are prepared to remain very much engaged, not only to end the conflicts, but also to help Africans in the Horn of Africa build a better future for themselves. That's Mike Hammer, the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa, on the U.S. focus on alleviating the suffering that the region has been dealing with. Details coming up also. China looks to make military gains in African nations. And we'll look at the Baltimore Afro-American, one of the early black-owned newspapers in the United States. These stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Senior U.S. officials say President Joe Biden's administration remains strongly committed to promoting peace and stability in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Somalia, and Sudan. From the Kenyan capital Nairobi, Ruben Chama reports. Molly Fee, the United States Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, says President Joe Biden's administration has been actively engaged in preventing conflict between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. As a result of that engagement, there have been intense, regular conversations between senior U.S. government officials and senior officials of the governments in Kigali and Kinshasa, including President Shisekedi and President Kagame. DRC President Felix Shisekedi has accused Rwandan President Paul Kagame of backing the M23 militia in its fight against the DRC military in the country's eastern provinces. Rwanda's government denies supporting the M23, one of the largest of the scores of rebel groups in the eastern DRC. During an online news briefing today, Fee also spoke about our efforts at the just-concluded African Union summit in Addis Ababa. She met with the presidents of Angola, DRC, Kenya, and Zambia. As we tried to de-escalate the conflict between the DRC and Rwanda, I had the opportunity to meet with Presidents Chishikedi, President Lorenzo, and President Ruto, and President Hichilema in an effort to defuse the situation. Michael Hama is the U.S. Special Envoy for the Horn of Africa. He says Washington remains concerned about the situation in conflicts in Sudan, Ethiopia, and Somalia. I think that it goes without question that the United States is focused on trying to alleviate the suffering that we've seen throughout the Horn. We are prepared to remain very much engaged, not only to end the conflicts, but also to help Africans in the Horn of Africa build a better future for themselves. He gave more details about the deliberations at the African Union Summit aimed at strengthening U.S.-Africa relations. He said it's important that Washington isn't acting alone. And uh, we do it with our African partners. The visit uh, to the African Union Summit was an opportunity for all of us to engage on these issues. Uh, to think together on how we can partner and how we can be most effective in trying to, again, bring peace and stability to the region. At the summit, tensions between Somalia and Ethiopia 
escalated following allegations by Somalia's president that Ethiopian security forces tried to bar him from attending the continental gathering of African leaders. The U.S. diplomats told journalists that Washington is committed to deepening the long-term U.S.-Africa partnership. Some foreign policy analysts have noted that Biden's new push to engage with African nations comes as China and Russia continue to expand their presence on the continent. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. China places significant strategic focus on countries around the Horn of Africa and the Gulf of Aden, including Djibouti, where it opened its first military facility outside China. This choice has received significant attention as the base will be only six miles from a U.S. military base in the same country. China has also expanded its network of defense attaches in Africa while increasing defense sales on the continent, which experienced 55% growth between 2012 and 2017. Paul Nanatulia, an associate researcher at the African Center for Strategic Studies, discussed China's strategic and military objectives in Africa with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. The People's Liberation Army is supporting larger strategic objectives that China is pursuing on the global stage. China, over the past 30, 40, 50 years, has sought to position itself internationally as a great power, as a power that can outcompete, especially the United States, economically, culturally, ideologically, and militarily. So what the People's Liberation Army does is support those larger objectives. It does not just pursue military objectives. And Africa is, is a major component of that particular effort. The second line of effort of the People's Liberation Army in Africa is to find common ground, common political and ideological objectives with like-minded countries. The People's Liberation Army is still remembered as one of the key players when it came to supporting the anti-colonial and anti-apartheid and anti-imperialist movements in Africa, across the African continent. Those historical bonds are critical because China views the global south and the countries within the global south, including African countries, as a foundation of its uh, global ambitions. So securing their support, their diplomatic support at the UN in uh, voting in multilateral organizations is extremely important. One way that China does this is uh, establishing establishing strong military ties, particularly with countries that the PLA and the Chinese Communist Party supported to win freedom against apartheid and against colonial governments. How about expanding the Chinese military sales in Africa? This is especially important for China, given that Russia, which used to be the number one supplier on the continent, is currently constrained because its defense companies have been very heavily sanctioned as a result of its invasion of Ukraine. And so there's a gap that China is filling. And initially, China was selling small arms and light weapons. But over the past uh, 20 to 30 years, Chinese military hardware has become much more sophisticated and much more capable. So you're talking 
tanks, you're talking artillery systems, you're talking submarines, you're talking Coast Guard vehicles, you're talking uh, combat helicopters, and you're talking unarmed aerial vehicles. Much as this hardware has improved in sophistication, it is still very affordable compared to Western hardware. Secondly, uh, China also offers flexible repayment terms and flexible uh, access to credit that African countries consider to be very cost-effective and politically feasible. And this uh, hardware does not come with political strings attached. Uh, So China, in that sense, has become a partner of choice for many African countries. China has also been investing in ports, infrastructure in so many African countries. What is the Chinese objective behind that? The fourth objective, uh, Mohammed, is uh, to explore strategic opportunities to increase Chinese access and maneuver, especially around the coastal uh, countries that have, you know, that have a coastline, the littoral states of Africa. China is probably the most important investor in uh, port infrastructure in different parts of the continent. About 100 uh, port developments are supported by uh, Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises, either through financing or through management of the ports or both. And this is significant because so far the Chinese uh, model of military basing is based on what I would call a light footprint and a dual-use model. Uh, What do I mean by this? If we look at what happened in Djibouti, that military base started out as a civilian port development, which was later upgraded to serve uh, dual-use purposes, including military purposes. This is the sort of model that China seems to prefer, and African countries offer huge opportunities to China. West Africa, East Africa, North Africa, there's a whole range of countries where China has the kind of political clout that it needs to establish uh, additional basing arrangements if it needs to. Can you explain the reasons behind China's efforts to offer military professional education to African militaries? Uh, China currently is training more African officers in Chinese military academies than any other industrialized country. This is important for a number of things. China is able to establish a common language of defense, is able to establish a common perspectives of defense, is also able to establish a common concepts of security, common security concepts that it is then able to use in order to build and strengthen its political ties on the continent. That was Paul Nanatulia, an associate researcher at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA's Mohammed al Shinawi. Somalia has announced a defense deal with Turkey that includes support for the Horn of Africa nation's sea assets. The Associated Press says it also appears aimed at deterring Ethiopia's efforts to secure access to the sea by way of the breakaway region of Somaliland. Reuters news reports Turkish defense officials say the deal will provide Somalia with maritime security and help develop its capacity and capabilities to combat illegal and irregular activities in its territorial waters. Ethiopia signed a memorandum of understanding with Somaliland on January the 1st. The document has rattled Somalia, which said it is prepared to go to war because it considers Somaliland part of its territory. Somaliland says Ethiopia agreed to recognize its independence in return for a naval port. Somalia's prime minister describes the deal with Turkey as a historic day for the country. (laughs) 
You're listening to Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. And for more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out voanews.com. South Africa votes on May 29th in what's likely to be the most significant election since the African National Congress, the ANC, took power in 1994 after decades of apartheid. Since then, however, the ANC's popularity has fallen dramatically, opening the door for opposition parties to make their most sustained push yet to force the former liberation movement out of government. Darren Taylor reports. Initially, the African National Congress seemed set to launch South Africa into progress and prosperity. It built thousands of homes for the poor and launched successful jobs and crime-fighting programs, among other achievements. But in the past 20 years, service delivery has declined remarkably, with long electricity and water outages now common. Infrastructure has deteriorated, including roads, harbours and railways, and many blame the problems on ANC corruption and poor management. Today, South Africa has the highest real unemployment rate of just over 41% and some of the highest rates of poverty and violent crime globally. Leading into the election, some polls have the ANC's share of the vote as low as 40%, a stark contrast to its 63% landslide victory under Nelson Mandela 30 years ago. Still, President Cyril Ramaphosa, who leads the ANC, said at a meeting in Johannesburg recently, talk of his party's demise is premature. The ANC is going to achieve an outright majority, so be relaxed. We are not working to be in coalition, but if we have to choose a coalition partner, we will choose the ANC to be our coalition partner. Some political analysts say the party's failures mean it's unlikely to get the votes it needs to govern on its own. They say the ANC may have to partner with a group of smaller parties or with South Africa's third largest party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, the EFF. The EFF wants the state to own all forms of wealth, including land, banks and mines. But it too is tainted by allegations of corruption and its supporters have often been violent. EFF leader Julius Malema's election war cry is that the ANC is in cahoots with white capitalists. He told journalists recently if he gets to govern, he'll redistribute the nation's wealth to the poor. That years since the attainment of political freedom, 80% of the population continues to occupy less than 10% of South Africa's land. More than 15 million capable South Africans who need jobs are unemployed. Our people live in absolute poverty. The EFF government will expropriate all land without compensation for equal redistribution in use, create millions of jobs through reindustrialization, 
using the state, this and many other commitments are what will change the lives of our people and deliver economic freedom in our lifetime. But economists say the EFF's policies are unrealistic and would cause economic meltdown. They say seizure of private property and resources would ignite massive capital and investment outflows, resulting in more hardship than ever. South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, the DA, has urged citizens to vote to stop the potential ANC-EFF alliance, something it calls the Doomsday Coalition. Polls show the DA alone cannot eject the ANC from government, but that a coalition headed by party leader John Stiernazen does have a slim chance of victory. We are absolutely committed to bringing to an end the 30 years of anti-failure, corruption and state capture. And I think the upcoming election is now an opportunity for the most important people in a democracy, and that is the voters, to choose a path of progress, transparency and accountability. So we say bring it on. We're looking forward to... However, many analysts expect the ANC to hold on to government, but with its power to set policy direction and to make appointments to cabinet and other high-level positions severely eroded. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. One of the first black newspapers in the U.S. was the Baltimore Afro-American, founded in 1892 by John Henry Murphy, Sr. It's also one of the first black papers to enter the computer age. Francis Murphy Draper, CEO of the Afro, the Black Media Authority, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam about her ancestor. She describes what the paper has become today, a media website with a global following that is also part of a collaboration of 10 black-owned publications created following the murder of African-American George Floyd by a white police officer in 2020, which touched off a wave of protests against police brutality. John Henry Murphy was my great-grandfather, and with $200 in capital from my great-grandmother Martha, that's the way we understand the story. He purchased the name Afro and a printing press at an auction. Uh, The printing press had been used to advertise feed. It was called a feed sheet. There were animals in Baltimore, and, you know, they were actually part of the city's economy, and so they were advertising feed for those animals. Uh, Those two publishers uh, were the Reverend William Alexander of the Sharon Baptist Church and Father George Bragg from the St. James Episcopal Church, and great-grandfather John ran their press. Well, they were better pastors than they were publishers and couldn't keep the business going. And so with this $200, great-grandfather John, a formerly enslaved man, a sergeant in the colored troops in the Civil War, who earned his freedom because he served in the Civil War, he and his wife Martha had 10 children, and he purchased the name and printing press at an auction when reportedly less than 2% of the Black population could read. He died in 1922 and tapped my grandfather Carl to um, be his successor. We are the oldest continuously published um, Black newspaper in the country by the same family. That's a rich, rich cultural history. He must be very proud. We we are very proud of that, and we will be 132 years old 
come uh, August of 2024. Wow. It's one of the first a traditional print, Black-owned. And one of the recent articles I read on your site is headlined, The Urgency of Ending the Racial Wealth Gap. It was saying basically Black men have the lowest employment numbers among all ethnic groups, according to a 2020 analysis from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. I'm assuming that's like one of the most recent they could get of analysis. What do you think are some of these factors that have gone into this high number of jobless Black men in this country? Well, I think there are several factors. And one, I believe, has to be the fact that Black men have a harder time even getting employment, being offered positions. I think that's one reason, like being on a merry-go-round. You know, you have to have the experience to get the job or to be elevated in a job that really pays more than just a minimum wage, right? But if you don't get the first job or the second job, then the promotional opportunities aren't there to go even further. We also have seen some data that suggests that Black males in public education are not treated as fairly as others, right? They're called on less often. They're penalized more often. They drop out of school at higher rates and so if you don't have the educational attainment, neither of us is saying all black men, but if you don't have the educational uh, attainment or the wherewithal to get that, that contributes also to lower skills, lower work experience. So that cycle just com- continues. And I don't think that we can ignore the elephant in the room, you know, the discrimination that still exists when people have to make a choice between two candidates, three candidates, four candidates, just depends on you know, what the culture and mindset of that company is, and a higher incarceration rate. And I think there have been many studies that talk about the inequalities within the American penal system. That's uh, Frances Murphy Draper, CEO of the Afro. She was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam from Miami, where she is attending the Night Media Forum, a discussion among philanthropists on how to help and enhance local journalism in the U.S. Hello. This is Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. Google says it will stop users from creating images of people on its uh, AI tool. This after the program depicted Nazi-era troops as people from diverse ethnic backgrounds. The U.S. tech giant, which released its revamped Gemini AI in some parts of the world in February 8th, said it was working to address recent issues with the image generation feature. The French news agency AFP says the announcement comes two days after a user of X, formerly Twitter, posted images showing Gemini's results for the prompt 
generate an image of a 1943 German soldier. The ex-user named John L. said the AI generated four images of soldiers. One was white, one black, and two were women of color. The Germany's Nazi party, however, considered the Aryan race and northern European Germanic culture superior to all others and attempted to murder all Jewish people in Europe. All programs, not only those produced by Google, have been widely criticized for perpetuating race biases in their results. And with that, we wrap up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehia Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Van Dee, and our engineer, Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.